One of the remarkable things about this Asbury revival is that it comes within the context of what I would call a very seeker-sensitive church culture, seeker-sensitive megachurch culture, where by and large, we don't hear about revival anymore. In fact, I can't, and, and it could just be me, but I don't remember a single revival being talked about since the advent of social media. And I think that's very interesting. I think there's some psychology behind all of that. But just the mere fact that revival is taking place, that it's drawing people like it is in the midst of a church culture where we don't even talk about revival much anymore from the pulpit on a Sunday morning or make it a part of at least our like our spiritual consciousness that this is a this is a reality available to us as believers. Um, and it's like we've just totally thrown out that part of church history and it doesn't matter to us anymore in postmodernity. So for that reason, I think that it's 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 miraculous if you want to put it that way. It's miraculous that we're even talking about revival right now. Yeah, that's you know, if you did watch my videos, I've done two so far. One of the things that that I, I said, I think I said it earlier on the show is, God is faithful to his own glory in every generation. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. I'm very excited to have an actual old friend on the podcast and somebody that kind of uh, used to run around in circles that uh, I'm very familiar with and maybe still does to some degree. But um, I wanted to bring him on the show today uh, to to discuss the Asbury revival. So Keith Collins is joining us today. And I'm going to save a little bit of his pedigree um, and, and not because credentialism means all that much, but but it, it, it does when we're talking about something as important as revival. So Keith has a long history um, in, in circles that have experienced revival, He's been in ministry, I think, 37 years. And again, I'm going to let him do most of this. But, uh, but I think his impact and input, uh, not only on the, on the body of Christ in the past, but also um, as it pertains to what revival actually is, why is it so important, and what can we take away from this Asbury revival, especially now that it's been close to the public, I think was an important conversation. So when I saw him post the other day, I wanted to bring him on to have a conversation about what just took place and is continuing to take place in other settings. So with that being said, Keith, thanks so much for being on hey thanks reed and it's um it's a really a real honor for me to be on with you buddy good to see you thank you me too. So um, I said that we used to run in similar circles and maybe in still some ways do, but um, one of those similar circles is right before I got married, your daughter went on a mission trip with me and my soon-to-be wife. So I don't know if you were aware of that, and this happened probably like, so we've been married for 13 years now, and so this is probably like 15 years ago or something like that. But, uh, but right before we got married, um, we went on the mission field with your daughter, and uh We've got a lot of uh, uh, friends and acquaintances in common, um, but again, one of the most important things is that you posted, or at least important for this conversation, you posted the other day that you went to Asbury, you experienced it yourself, and that caught my attention because of your background in ministry. Not only do you have a long tenure in ministry, but you also have had a tenure in ministry where you have experienced really phenomenal moves of God in the past. So I was just wondering if you could kind of give us a brief um, history of your ministry experience experience, because I think that that matters and it lends credibility to what you have to say, but also to kind of your experience as it pertains to and intersects with with revival experiences in the past. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I was 
radically um, born again, and I had a, real, a really radical experience um, with the Lord when I was a teenager there in North Florida. And, you know, I, I'd gotten into drugs, alcohol. My biological father was a drug addict. He fell dead at age 51. Um, he introduced myself and some of my siblings to narcotics, to pornography. I mean, at the age of eight years old, I started doing drugs with my father. And, um, you know, he destroyed his life pretty much. I have a younger brother that's been in prison in Florida for 29 years now as, the, wow. as a result of the road that my father introduced us to. However, by the mercies of God, he found me as a teenager, and I was literally radically um, delivered, Reed. I mean, it's kind of like a, a, a Damascus Road-type experience. It really is. And um, so that was at almost 16 years old, and from that time, I didn't understand it, but I knew that I had to let people know. So, you know, I started preaching pretty much immediately. I didn't know what to say. I just gave my testimony, and actually the first individual that gave me a platform to preach on was Henry Jones. I was 16 years mm -hmm. old. And for those, by, by the way, for those who are listening, Henry Jones is the pastor of the church where I eventually gave my life to Christ back in 2000. So he's affectionately my uh, my my lead pastor for life, um, although not uh, necessarily in the present. So, but yeah, keep going. Yes. So, like you said in the um, intro, I mean, our our past connect in in pretty unique ways, obviously. So anyhow, yeah. he, he had me speak, and you know, from that time, I just knew that that this is what I was called to do. So, you know, obviously, I I, I just continue to pursue the Lord and things develop. I, I got married very young and then my wife's parents, they were church planters in Ohio, West Virginia and Kentucky. And so they kind of took me under their, under their wing and, and then, you know, really started pastoring my first church when I was 19 years old in the state of Maryland. I probably wasn't ready, but, but it happened and the Lord blessed that, that season. And, um, and then when, you know, I, I got involved in a church in West Virginia, my, my in-laws church and Pretty, for West Virginia, pretty large church, about 750 people. And I became the associate pastor slash kind of youth pastor and then began to travel out some. And and then, you know, when I turned about 27 years old, I began to hear about what God was doing in Pensacola, Florida through the Brownsville Revival. And it kind of caught my attention up because... And what, what year was that? That would have been in 1995. So okay. 1995. And it caught my attention because Pensacola is my hometown. I still have a lot of family in the area there in Pensacola. And um, and I just kind of had a desire to really, um, you know, visit. So our mutual friend, Henry Jones, um, actually is the one that invited me to go to Brownsville with him. And I went there that first time, and that would have been in 1996, Reed. So it had been going on probably less than a year. Okay. But, um, you know, I mean, I had experienced the Lord multiple times in my life, and I was, and I considered myself a person of prayer and, and even fasting and was just very diligent. We did a lot of street ministry, and my wife and I, and we had seen the Lord just, you know, touch multiple people throughout our, our tenure of ministry at that point. But when I got to Brownsville, I will have to tell you that um, there was a tangibility of the presence of God that I had not experienced before, except for the night that I was radically saved and on January the 24th of 1985 in Otter Creek, Florida, which is right near Salt Choppy, actually. So yeah. anyhow, um, but when I got there, I, I was immediately cognizant that there was something beyond a good preacher and good singing and a, a good church. Yeah. And, um, when I went into the service that night, just 
I mean, I literally began to break and weep. It's not that I was in sin at all, but just the holiness and the beauty of Jesus so overwhelmed me. And, you know, after the worship, which literally lasted probably two and a half hours, it felt like five minutes. I found that in these seasons of visitation, I experienced this last Wednesday at Asbury. It's almost like time seems to stand still in a certain way. So that happened there at Brownsville. And Anyhow, um, Steve Hill preached, and then before he preached, a guy, a guy named Mike Brown, who's one of my dearest friends, and we're, we're colleagues, and Dr. Michael Brown, just a, a great scholar. But uh, Yeah, he's a podcaster. I think he's on the radio, too. Yeah, awesome man of um, revival and passion and prayer and missions, and so we've become very, very dear friends, and I've done quite a bit of th- quite a bit together over the years but anyhow mike brown got up that night in the meeting and he announced they were launching a ministry school the brownsville revival school of ministry i've been in ministry for years and i've had some online training but but i felt like i was supposed to be a part of that school so i literally was in the pioneer class of the brownsville revival school of ministry it was a two-year um practical ministry type training school and you know of course we studied hebrew and different things like that and jewish roots and new testament books and old testament survey all the stuff that and then practical ministry as well and immediately after i graduated um you know mike brown said the lord pretty much showed him that i was supposed to be on leadership there so i became like the dean of students um and at that time the school had swollen to about 1,300 students, and then I became, I was the dean, then I took over pastoral care. I had a whole department under me of counselors because so many people were getting radically saved from drug addiction and just, you know, horacious, ferocious lives, and um, they were coming and getting radically touched by the love of God, but they needed pastoring. They need, so anyway, I, I was over pastoral care, and then things kind of shifted and um, Mike Brown and them kind of broke away from the revival and started fire school. And I literally became the, the president of the Brownsville revival school of ministry for a season. Then after that time, I actually rejoined fire again and, um, and Mike Brown and them and became the director of fire school of ministry for about 10 years here in Charlotte. And, you know, during that time, I'm also, I've also been, heavily involved with a lot of traveling ministry. I've preached in 37 nations around the world. I've, um, I've helped plant five Bible colleges in Europe, Africa, um, Eastern and Western Europe, as well as in the Philippines. And um, so, you know, I've done a lot. And, and, you know, whenever the Lord began to move two weeks ago in, in Asbury, it, it really caught my attention for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm a kind of a um, student of history and I've taught on revival history, even revival on collegiate campuses. And Asbury is kind of notorious. The first visitation there is 1905, and they had a couple in the 1950s, the main one in 1970, and now this one in 2023. Um, So it caught my attention. And to be honest with you, I, I didn't go because I felt like I needed a fresh touch from God. The reason I went is because... I have such a passion for Generation Z and um, even yeah. Generation, what they call an Alpha, and even the Millennials. But, but for the Lord to move so sovereign, even though Asbury College is a Christian college, there's a lot of Christian colleges that have become very liberal in their theology, 100%. even in their approach to the canonicity of Scripture and the, um, you know, just some of the, the main tenets of the faith that, that I hold dear to, and um, so. Um, anyhow, when I saw that the Lord was moving there, I told my wife, I said, we just need to go. And I went, and I'll be honest with you, brother, I was, I was kind of overtaken 
by the love of God, by the glory of God, by the weight of God. And what I saw was just such hunger, especially among mm. young people and young adults. I mean, just repenting um, the loving kindness of God being stretched toward them, their hearts being bent towards the Lord. Just such a um, weight of God's love and glory that was so present yeah. there. And then the people that have just that just came in from literally around the country and really around the world. So um, I, I, I'll say this. Um, there's no way that a school or any group could say this is what we're going to do and we're going to make a plan. And here, there's no, and I mean, and this, this, this school, it's interesting because this, this building that, that this thing broke out in, I mean, you literally, you go back in time, like 110 years, it's an old building with wooden seats, stained glass, a pipe organs in there. I mean, you feel, I felt like I've been, I felt like I was in a, um, a church in Wales or in England or something like a church from yeah. 50 years ago. But by the way, by the way, I think we'll get into this probably a little bit more. I think that's one of the remarkable things about this ministry too, is how sim- simple it was and how, um, how the people that were over it really intended to be very clear in their focus and what they wanted to accomplish. So we'll get into the things that kind of make this revival remarkable, but you said you're, uh, you were a student of revival and not only had you experienced, but you, but you've studied it and, and taught classes on revival in the past. So I want to step back and go to Brownsville in just a moment. Before we do that, let's talk revival broadly. So what, what in your mind classifies something, historically speaking, as a revival? When we say, this is a revival, this is the, the first Great Awakening, the second Great Awakening, what are kind of some of the earmarks of things that we're looking for to classify something as a revival? Sure. I Let's take the two Great Awakenings. Of course, the first one in the 1700s among the American colonies, and um, you know the New England colony was a primary area, especially with figures like Jonathan Edwards. And then, of course, the Second Great Awakening, um, 1800s, Finney and different ones were being used. Charles Finney as, as vessels of the Lord. But here's what I always try to explain to students: the reason they're called awakenings or revi- I mean, the word revival means to revivify or to bring back to life. So the reason yeah. it's called revival or awakening is because somebody's falling asleep, and usually it's it's the church. And, and with that said, I do want to say this, Reed, because I, I tried to qualify this on a couple of videos that I did on social media. I know, and you know, faithful people of the Lord that have been um, faithful to prayer, faithful to love this generation that we're in right now, faithful to, you know, church doctrine and church dogma. I mean, you know, the tenets of the faith. So right. I understand that at the same time, um, I do know that, unfortunately, a lot of the American, not not just the American church, but I'm speaking of America now because of what's going on in America with Asbury and now different campuses. Um, In America, there has been a strong focus on production, performance, um, you know, aesthetics, and that's really become, and, you know, studying demographics in order to appease to them on a certain level. So... Historically, we see that God moves in and revives a people that have kind of fallen asleep spiritually. They might be going through the motions of religion, the motions of church attendance in the first great awakening. I mean, when the colonists came over, literally the first thing they did in these villages was they would build a church. It was it was centered to their culture. However, there was a coldness. There was not an intimacy with the Lord. Um, You know, church had become a part of their life, but Jesus was not really real in their life. So the Lord 
historically has began to oftentimes he'll send like a firebrand, someone that has met Jesus in an intimate way, whether it be an Edwards or a Finney, and they they have this personal revival and then they give themselves to prayer and intercession we see and the Lord uses their faithfulness in order to bring about a visitation that's really beyond what man can do. And I, I've been all over the world. I've been to places where these great moves of God have happened. I was in the Hebrides Island um, off the, yeah. the coast of Scotland several years, probably maybe seven years ago now, wait, a few years before COVID hit. But I was in Barvis on the Outer Hebrides, which is where the, the um, Hebridean revival broke out in 1949. They'd had other moves of God historically before that. You know, the island of Lewis at this time in 1949 is an island of, of about 25,000 people, small population of people. But, um, but you know, some folks in, the, in a certain church in Barvis began to really get gripped with God's heart to visit that island again in power and in demonstration. So there's two older ladies. There's a group of young folks meeting in a barn on one night a week. They begin to cry out to God, Lord, send your glory again. They, they get hungry because the church had become so cold and um, a lot of drinking establishments had, had opened up and there was just a, a somewhat of a, a spiritual anemia that had taken place in the church. Yeah. So these folks that had known the Lord began to cry out to God to visit again. And, of course, you know, Hebrides had a great revival. You can read the history of it. But I actually met with a couple that were in the revival, and he became a minister. He was 96, and she was 94, the husband and wife. They were still alive. And I, I sat down. I actually have like two hours of, of recorded interviews with them. But, um, but I sat down and talked to them and just asked them, you know, what was it that, that stood out to you in revival? Mm-hmm. And some of the main things that stood out, Reed, was the fact that there were many people that were radically arrested by the Spirit of God before they ever even heard a preacher or ever even came near a church building, sometimes working in a field, sometimes working at a weaver's loom, and conviction would literally visit them. The Holy Spirit would visit them and bring deep conviction, and they were just radically touched and changed. So, so yeah. By the way, you 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 hear these stories about Charles Finney walking through like factories back in the early Americas, and people just crying out and repenting just when he's walking through the factory. Exactly. So, so anyhow, when I think of revival, to kind of answer your question as good as I can here, um, it's two things. Number one, it's, I think, God's response to faithful people that have refused to let go of the truth of God's word and still believe that God, God can visit. Number two, it's really God's loving kindness that, that he would – I mean, God, we know God's omnipresent. We understand that. But there are times when he – in his grace and in his mercy and in his loving kindness allows um, the kabod of his nature, the weight, the heaviness of his nature to be experienced in a region, in a nation, among a generation. And, um, and that's what I believe corporate revival is. Again, I think you and I can both live in personal revival always. Sure. But I don't have to wait, you know, I don't have to wait for the, wet, for the rest of the, the church to wake up for me to be awake. However, when I'm talking about revive and what we're seeing at Asbury, what I saw at Brownsville, there's an element of sovereignty to it that's almost um, intimidating. 
at the same time, it brings great joy. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I like what you said about spiritual anemia and trying to be clear with like kind of like the spiritual snobbery of just saying like, well, the church is so backwards and blah, 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 blah. Well, the, the reality is, is yeah, the, um, there are some churches who are doing really great things and this doesn't undermine that uh, reality. Uh, but I think it is also very fair to say, and this will come into uh, play a little bit later as we talk about Asbury specifically, but where we're at today, um, I, I think we, we, I think most Christians would agree we're in desperate need of revival. We're in a cultural time where 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 God is needed uh, not more than He ever has been, but but He's needed more than than we can probably remember to to shift what's going on in in our culture. And and I wanted to say something else too about this in terms of the academy because I thought it was very unique that Asbury happened in a school, um, or that Asbury revival happened in a school. Because um, I also think while we can't, uh, while we don't want to demean what's happening in churches around the the globe every single uh, time they open their doors, I, I think th- I don't want to demean the academy either. But I'm just going to be really, really honest with you that when I went to school, um, I was seeing back in 2012 in graduate school when I was studying for theology, I was seeing the leftist creep of Marxism among my professors all the way back then, and I think really that becomes like the seedbed of what I'm doing now with Indie Thinker is that like. A lot of people now are scratching their head when they hear about critical theory and critical race theory and when they hear about left-wing gender ideology and they wonder how you can literally be uh, a, a Marxist and a Christian and how like those two things go together or how you can be a second or third wave feminist and be a Christian when those two things are, are totally juxtaposed to each other. But I was seeing this stuff back in 2012 at a conservative Christian evangelical uh, Pentecostal university. Um, so to me, to suggest that we are in desperate need of God as a culture and individually is, is no far stretch to the imagination. Um, but I want to talk about um, this uh, just real briefly about uh, Pensacola. Now, you talked about revival being kind of a visitation of God, but also a revivifying. One of the things that at least I, from secondhand experience, because I, I experienced Brownsville more via our pastor than I actually did with Brownsville proper. Um, but uh, one of the things that I think I remember about Brownsville is that people were radically getting saved in the hundreds, if not thousands, on a regular basis, on a nightly basis. And there were crowds just like at Asbury, kind of wrapping around the building, waiting to get into church. So what were some of the things in the Brownsville revival that you would say were really remarkable or that earmarked this that distinct move of God from from your past experience? Yeah, um, you're right. I mean, definitely hundreds nightly getting really, and many people radically saved. I mean, I mean, I had an experience, the assistant principal of Wakala High School, which is the high school there where you and I both lived for a season. Actually, I went to high school there, and I knew the assistant principal, and um, there was a young man who had really gotten heavy duty involved in, in Satanism and the occult and was in trouble by the law and so forth and so on. And he called me. He said, Keith, he said, could you take this guy? I'm not going to give his name. Could, could you take him to the Brownsville Revival? He said, he's he's in a lot of trouble. But he said, I've kind of worked it out. He knew the sheriff and all that kind of stuff. And I've worked it out where he can go with well, you. Yeah, he can go with you because we know you. <laughs> so, you know, I'm yeah. from the area there. It had been in ministry years at that, at that time. But um, long story short, I, I took this, and this guy read this. This and this. This might sound radical to some of your listeners. Um, 
But this guy, on the way over there, he was literally had some kind of a ray. He was cutting his arm and mm-hmm. sucking his blood in the car, trying to freak us out. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was just so far gone, just very dark looking. I mean, gothic looking, but completely into a demonic world that he lived in, and probably you know, demonized. Um, we got there, and he was actually mad that we were going. When he got there, Reed, literally, I'm not exaggerating. When we walked into the door. You could see his face change. Mm. We got in there, and Linda Cooley, the worship leader, literally hit the first keys on the keyboard and began to sing. This kid literally walked straight up to the front and just tears. I mean, matter of fact, it was so supernatural. Steve Hill did not even preach that night because he recognized what God was doing. In this. Well, that, this young man now is a youth pastor in Dade City, Florida, has been in ministry for years. But radical, radical conversions. I mean, people that would, would come, you know, from the most horrific backgrounds would come into that setting and just be confronted with the Spirit of God. And they, they had one or two options, and I saw both. Um, they either ran out the back door because they couldn't take it, or they ran mm-hmm. to the altars. Um, so that was one thing. The lines, people so hungry, man. And, and not just, um, not just, Unbelievers. I mean, there was a lot of first-time salvations, but there was a lot of people that had just become, like I said earlier, anemic or even nominal in their in their faith. And you know, they they believed in God, but but Jesus had become more of a mascot than the Lord of their life and their hearts. So um, so the Lord really revivified them. I mean, he 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 woke them up, and they were revived. Um, you know, so we saw that again. Just um, the the fact that people would come there. And I think I'm seeing this from Asbury, and I'm already starting to hear reports from a few mm-hmm. different people, would come there and receive from the Lord and then take that back to their school, to their homes, to their churches, to their communities. Yeah. Um, I heard multiple stories of, of marriages that, that the Lord strengthened. And, you know, one of the things that amazed me the most, brother, I was on the prayer team, which if you ever came to Brownsville, you remember um, that what they would do is Steve would preach, they'd do an altar call, and then they had this regularly did this unless the Lord moved otherwise, but then they would have a prayer team, just pray for people, bless people, pray for healing, fresh anointing upon people's lives. And I was on that prayer team for about three and a half years. Man, there were nights, it kind of freaked me out to be honest with you. I mean, there were nights when like 65, 68-year-old men would stand before me who was in my early 30s at the time, and they would say, sir, I need weeping, I need prayer. I've been pastoring the same church for 20-plus years. I've been having adultery with my secretary for over 10 years. I've got kids and grandkids, and I've got to go home and confess this and make it right. I remember one guy distinctly came before me just weeping, an old man, like in his 70s, early 70s. He said, son, he said, I've been pastoring for over 40 years, the same church. He said, I have stolen tens of thousands of dollars from my church. And he said, I know I'm probably going to prison. He said, but I'd rather get right with God than go to my grave hiding the sin. I mean, that was the level of, that's, that's intense, but yeah. that's, that's the level of refining fire that was burning in Brownsville. I mean, it was, it was, it was supernatural, brother. Only God can do those kind of things. Yeah, I, I mean, and I experienced that at least in our home church and kind of the overflow of what took place at Brownsville, which makes me a little bit more... I suppose, uh, in fairness, a little bit more likely to be open to what to, is taking place at Asbury and then other places like that, because 
man, I, when I went to our church for the very first time and I saw grown men on their knees, weeping, crying out to God, worshiping the Lord, man, it didn't take me long to realize I was in the presence of something way different than I had ever been in my life. And I'm so thankful for that because most of the churches I had ever been to, if anybody clapped, they would have looked around and, and you know, tried to find out who the culprit was. Um, <clears throat> but, um, but the exuberance and the joy that kind of earmarked Brownsville and uh, and even kind of found its way to our church was something that was so, so life-giving to me when I first experienced it. So I guess that's why I'm really um, excited to see what's going on at Asbury. But, um, but that hasn't come without some criticism, obviously. There's been, and obviously very quick, maybe that's because of our social media age, but all the way back in the 90s when you were there at Brownsville, was, was there a level of criticism like there is presently with Asbury um, as to whether or not it's really revival? And maybe there is still to this, to this day as to whether or not Brownsville was a true blue revival. But, uh, but was that kind of criticism going on back then? Oh, most, most definitely. Again, we didn't have Facebook at that time. and uh, However, you know, there were plenty of ways to get the word out, and there was definitely criticism, um, even within – because, you know, Brownsville was an Assembly of God church, is an Assembly of God church. Even within other Assembly of God churches within a, a 50-mile radius of Brownsville, it was kind of like half and half. There were yeah. half the people that accepted it, half the people said it was of the devil, so forth and so on. I will say this. There were pastors that I knew because I've, you know, I, even today, I, literally three weekends a month, I'm preaching somewhere. I was in Orlando area last weekend. I'll be in Maryland this weekend. I'll head into Newfoundland, Canada in a few weeks. I mean, I'm pretty much on the road at least three weekends a month at preaching. So I've, I've known a lot of pastors for many, many years. And some of the pastors that I was connected with, Reed, back during that time that I preached for, some of them multiple times, were really hesitant and even probably they would even tell you critical from a distance, but I would just say, listen, just, just come. I'm not telling you to come and leave and promote it, but just come. And every one of those that came, <laughs> they were so overwhelmed yeah. by the love of Jesus, by the holiness of Jesus, by the preaching of the pure gospel, by the salvations that it so affected them. And many of them have never really been the same. I mean, their, their ministries completely went to a new sphere of intimacy with Jesus, of, of power, of passion, of prayer, of of taking care of the poor. I mean, feeding. I mean, just feeding programs, supporting sex trafficking stuff. I mean, they just their hearts just came alive with the. It was more than a Sunday morning service. And how many butts can we put in a pew? I mean, they they literally came alive with a passion to do the works of Jesus in their generation. So, at the same time, you know, there's always critics. Um, you know, every great move of God, I mean, there, there's always critics, and that's just par for course. I guess Jesus set the tone. There were many critics that he had among the yeah. religious, especially. Um, and that's, you know, that's, again, that that's part of it. At the same time, I am encouraged, and this is one thing I've been trying to do, especially because of what God's doing among Generation Z. Um, I've just really been trained. I'll be 55 soon. I've got eight grandkids now. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not old, but I'm not a kid anymore. But I've been really, really strongly encouraging people my age and even older, let's support what God is doing. Let's not 
hey, listen, I've got a graduate degree. I'm actually finishing a Ph.D. this year. I've got a, a graduate degree from an accredited university in theology, and, and I love all that, and that's a part of my life, and I've taught in scholarly-type settings, and I love collegiate studies and you know, professorial-type things. But my, my heart, let's not try to critique this so much and pick this apart. We know there's truth there. We know there's good theology there. Let's support what God is doing among these young people and not shut the door before they once they get in then of course we need to disciple them we don't want to put dead religion on them, but we need to disciple them and teach them the faith and the doctrines of the church but let's not shut the door that god is open and just become cynics and critics because what god is doing i believe is very valuable it's very precious and i think i know i'm speaking for keith right now I have to be a father right now. Mm. And, um, you know, sometimes fathers deal with messy, messy stuff. <laughs> I remember one thing, Reed, that stands out. I just thought of this. Um, there was, on Friday nights, they would baptize people getting saved in the Browns of Revival. And sometimes, you know, 50, 60 people would get baptized on a Friday night. And I remember one, one girl standing up. She's probably 25 or maybe younger. And she was like, I don't understand this, but, you know, I, I feel this. And she said, I, this Jesus thing is better than sex. I mean, just in other words, and that that sounds crazy, but I mean, but literally, that's all she knew to compare it to, that yeah. what she'd experienced. And so sometimes they don't have the right, or they don't, they don't have the right communication. They don't have our Christian way of communicating. But we need to father and and mother as as men and women of the faith what the Lord is doing among the young yeah. people. So I I feel a very honestly I feel a strong thing on me to warn especially older leaders, um, you know, to humble yourself, uh, get off your religious high horse and love good, love well, and, um, and allow the Lord to use you and your real experiences with the Lord to help what he's doing among this younger generation. Well, I want to jump into Asbury in just a minute, but I think that that's a good point to just kind of have this brief conversation because I think that there is this tension between, you know, the scripture telling us that a spiritual person discerns all things, but then how do you not also like consistently go around being the the fruit inspector for for everything that's taking place, especially in a generation? And I, I just talked about this on my, my weekly kind of current events show. In 2020, uh, in 2020, there were uh, among kids who were six to 17, there was something like 24,000 kids who were diagnosed with gender dysphoria. One year later, 42,000 kids within the range of six to 17 were diagnosed with gender dysphoria. So I'm just thinking to myself, listen, I, I want to fight for discernment. I want to fight for wisdom. I even want to fight for being critical about things that deserve critical thinking. But I also want to be very, very careful that we're not doing what Jesus rebuked his disciples for doing, which is um, trying to cast out somebody who was not against them. And Jesus says, "Hey, if they're not against, if they're not um, against us, then then hey, you know, leave them alone." You know, uh, so so how do we kind of toe that balance and keep that tension of being a discerning individual, you know, calling calling a spade a spade, but also being op- being not so critical that we that we don't think you know, get to the place where we think God needs our permission before he starts a revival. <laughs> Very good. That's, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the way you describe it, it is, it is a tension. I mean, there is a tension there, especially among those of us that are, 
you know, we've we've experienced academia and, and a certain level of scholarship yeah. and stuff like that. There's always that <laughs> that default mode that I can get into, and that you know, I, I know you're a thinker and a reader like I am, and, and researcher, and I do a lot of research. Um, so, number one, I think it's important that we we never compromise, you know, the foundations of our faith. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's number one. Um, Beyond that, we also have to recognize that there are, I mean, there are wolves. There are, there are people out there that are, are deceptive, and actually there was, I'm not going to give a name, but there was a key figure there. I say key, a known figure. A lot of people don't know this. I know this because I have some connection through leadership to the actual, the main leadership of the, the university and stuff. There was, you know, a known leader that they required to leave because that leader is known. I, know, I think I know who you're talking about, by the yeah. way. And I was thinking, dude, you should probably be quiet on social media. You're not helping. Yeah, this leader, you know, this leader is known for um, just, I mean, I'll just say craziness. I mean, yeah. not just theologically, but lifestyle and so forth and so on. And just, you know, grandiose, um, you know, type of, you know, displays and just totally over the top stuff. And, and I was actually, I was blessed to hear that they they required this person to leave the campus so on one level i I think we have to we have to be um apologists we have to be theologians on a certain that's part of our responsibility as as an elder in the body of christ as a leader in the body of christ i mean i have that mandate upon me at all times and i know that i'll be judged more harshly according to scripture than others because i'm called to preach and teach the word of god so that's that's one thing so we never set that aside Mm-hmm. At the same time, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to bring about my my knowledge of soteriology and pneumatology and all these things that I've studied in depth, and choke someone who's experienced the, experiencing the love of Jesus at this point if they say something wrong, and if there's something that maybe I wouldn't do if I was the leader there. As long as again, there's not blatant. Um, you know, perversion of scripture and, um, and and dangerous leadership taking place. So I think it's it's wisdom to meet people where they're at with truth, and you know, realize that this generation they can't handle T-bone steaks. I mean, they need yeah. the milk of the word, and they need they, they really need to. And this is what I love about revival because revival is does so much better than we can do. In our human ability, revival allows them. The Lord visits, and they, I mean, when I saw those kids there at Asbury read, um, and I say kids, I mean, probably 16 to 25, I mean, just weeping, man. Not because they felt, they just, they were experiencing the love of Jesus. Now, could I critique one or two? Sure, I could. I mean, of course I could. But I know that, that my role is to support them, that generation and to, to help them, to teach them truth. I mean, not to compromise truth or, or church doctrine and things of this nature, but but to allow them to be where they're at right now and to have the wisdom to take them by the hand. I always tell people, you preach and teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Mm-hmm. And to invite them into my life as best I can. One of the reasons why we want to do these prayer meetings at our home, because you know we've always had students around us and still do on a certain level, but it's kind of a different season for us right now. But... um. But I don't want to just show people what to do. I want to invite them. Listen, you come into my prayer life. You you come into my worship life. You come into my the way I treat my wife, the way I treat my kids and my grandkids, the way that I take care of my practical life, my finances, my ministry, my ministry finances. In other words, 
invite them into your walk with God, your personal revival realm. And from there, I think we make disciples. But it's it's there's always that tension to to point out the things that are wrong. I just honestly, I think as I've grown older, not that I've compromised at all. Matter of fact, I'm. I'm as stalwart as I've ever been as far as the doctrine of the church and of the apostles and prophets. But my heart is mollified towards especially those that have been, and you brought it up, have been affected by Marxism, postmodernism, deconstructionism, existentialism, pluralism. Just an entire generation, brother, that um, they deal with stuff I never dealt with. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to ask you a question about this, Keith, real quick, because this is burn. This burns in my heart too. One of these things, and I, I haven't put my finger on why, um, or even if I'm correct about this diagnosis. But one of the remarkable things about this Asbury revival is that it comes within the context of what I would call a very seeker-sensitive church culture, seeker-sensitive mega-church culture, where by and large. We don't hear about revival anymore. In fact, I can't, and, and it could just be me, but I don't remember a single revival being talked about since the advent of social media. And I think that's very interesting. I think there's some psychology behind all of that. But just the mere fact that revival is taking place, that it's drawing people like it is in the midst of a church culture where we don't even talk about revival much anymore from the pulpit on a Sunday morning or make it a part of at least our like our spiritual consciousness that this is a this is a reality available to us as believers um and it's like we've just totally thrown out that part of church history and it doesn't matter to us anymore in post-modernity so for that reason i think that it's 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 miraculous if you want to put it that way it's miraculous that we're even talking about revival right now yeah that's you know if you did watch my videos i've done two so far one of the things that that i I said i think i said it earlier on the show is God is faithful to his own glory in every generation. Because like you said, and my wife and I talked about this a couple nights ago, it's amazing that we're seeing this right now. <laughs> because like yeah. you said, it's been so far out of our view and our, our our thoughts for so many. I mean, of course, me, because just because of my my lifestyle. But, I mean, this might sound funny, but most of the churches that are – a lot of the churches I've been in in the last probably 20 years – since the Browns are revival, especially some of the newer church plants that have the um, you know the mega church growth model and all that kind of stuff. I mean, for me to preach about revival, the people would look at me like a mule looking at a new gate. I mean, they'd be like, "What are yeah. you talking about?" You know, it's like so far out of their purview. Um, so you're right; it's a miracle, man. I mean, it really is. There, again, there's just no way that this could just happen. There's no way, and that that's that's one thing that stands out to me that proves the validity that this is a true visitation because we're not, I mean, if it was the 1940s, of course, I mean, grandma and grandpa have been praying for 30 years and bless God, everybody's, everybody goes to church, even the, but not this generation. So for the Lord to move like this in revival fire and in visitation in 2023, brother, it is nothing short of a divine miracle from God and only God could do this. There's no no school, no preacher, no worship. Nobody could do this except the Lord. So he, again, man, his loving kindness towards humanity is kind of overwhelming to me. It's like he gives, he gives every generation an opportunity to turn to him. And we see this through the history of Israel. When they would fall into idolatry and the practices of pagan nations that surrounded them, 
um, you know, the Lord in his mercy, first of all, would send some blazing prophetic voice, whether it be Isaiah or Jeremiah or, you know, of course, Samuel, kind of like that end of the Judges era, really beginning of the consistent prophetic voices to Israel, whether it be the northern or the southern kingdom, um, you know, after the monarchy split there. But, but still just the, the consistent faithfulness of God to speak, speak, speak to his people. But then the Lord would visit sometimes and he would reveal his glory to those people again. So he's his his pattern and again these are some of the challenging things that i've taught throughout history of my history is the nature of god his pattern is to be merciful even when we don't deserve mercy and he, he's such an amazing god and you know he's also a god of judgment of course but even in the midst of i believe like you said the darkest hour that you and i've ever seen in our in our lifetimes i mean i've you know i'm i'm a kid of the 80s and you know 70s and born in the 60s late 60s but but I, I've never seen, whether it be gender dysphoria, um, whether it be just the destruction of the family and marriage, the, you know, the indoctrination of Marxism and, you know, some of these thoughts that were around years ago that have now kind of resurfaced and how they deliberately came into universities several years, decades ago in order to yeah. infiltrate culture. Um, for God to move in that, brother, it is a divine miracle. That's all I can say. Yeah, that's only one of the kind of remarkable, the remarkable things, and I mean that literally, remarkable things about what's ta- what took place at Asbury. But uh, so let's talk about that real quick. So from your experience being there, and I know there's a lot of people who have shared their experience without ever going. So we have you and the benefit of you being there and experiencing that, and then the history that you shared with us. So what were some of the things that you walked away thinking about what is taking place at Asbury? Um, number one, what I just said, only God could do this, number one. Number two, um, I was really, I have to be honest with you, I'm shocked. At the same time, I'm not surprised. And the reason mm-hmm. I say that is because, um, you know, in recent months, read probably the last seven, eight months or so maybe, as I've been out preaching and, and just meeting with leaders, um, I've really seen a hunger that the Lord has stirred up in a lot of hearts so on one level myself dr michael brown a lot of us leaders we've been talking about hey this is different something's different because we're, we're all out traveling doing ministry you know speaking at conferences meeting with pastors i meet with a lot of pastors and even help them with their i mean even their budget i mean i, I do what i can do to, to coach and help but there's just a different level of, of hunger and thirst so that's one thing but but again i was shocked man because like you said, only God could do this. Another thing that, that really impacted me was the radical, and this might not sound too exciting, but the radical humility and hospitality that I experienced there. Mm. Well, that's good. I mean, it blew my mind. I mean, I, literally people were coming up to my wife and I, we, we heard this all around us. Do you guys need a place to sleep? We, we have an extra room. I mean, these are like, you know, college kids as well as young adults and, and just they made you feel like they were so honored that you would come. Mm. Even providing water and snacks to every thousands of people. But just the and the the level of patience, it was almost like the visitation of God is so deep and so strong that the church actually really became the church. I mean, mm. it was just the most wow. loving, hospitable, you know, and I've I've preached, you know, some of the most powerful things I've ever experienced was uh, first time I went to India um, I went with about 35 people a team of, of students with me and um, 
when I got there, we got to the little airport in Vishakapatnam, and I couldn't believe they were going to land a jet at this airport, but they did. But we got out, and this like group me. of this this group of guys came and got our. And I was like, "No, I can carry them. No, we want to carry your suitcases." And then we got to the um, the place where we were staying, and we were sleeping on top of a roof, and you know, very crude um, um, environment, but such a beautiful environment at the same time. But anyhow these brothers brought out like a silver wash bowl. They were, they put our hands in the bowl. They were literally washing our hands. And I felt so intense. I mean, I'm not one that wants anybody to do that for me, but they served us so well. And I found out before we left that one of the men had planted over 3000 churches, the guy that was washing my hands and carrying my suitcases. So just that radical picture of servanthood, humility, um, just deep, deep love and unity. I mean, those are the things that just beyond the presence of God and the glory of God, it was like, it was like Jesus had walked into the room <laughs> in, yeah. in and through these people. So those, those things really stood. Another thing that, that really blessed me was watching, um, the baby boomers and even, even really older people, like in their eighties, I, I I felt to go get prayer not because I was in sin, but I just, you know, I wanted whatever God had there for me, and if it could come through a vessel because I had a prayer team. So I went up, and I got on my knees, and a dear brother came up to me, probably I would say mid eighties. He was a missionary to um, Hong Kong for a year, then a missionary to China for or to I'm sorry Vietnam for years, Hong Kong, and then Vietnam. And brother, just pray, just the blessing of God over me. He said, what the Lord has given me, I impart to you. And he's like literally tears. And he's just, I mean, it wasn't just this, oh, you know, in the name of Jesus. Be, no, he was, you could, I mean, the prayer there is so rich. And it's like the people are praying the heart of Jesus into those that are receiving. So there's, brother, there's, um, I mean, I, I've been in a good way. I've been messed up ever since I left there. And I, I was there a week, a week ago today. I mean, literally. My prayer time. We had a we had some folks here last night just praying for them. Just the the love of God, the power of God. So it was, you know. Again, there's so many things I could say, but it yeah. was just truly an authentic experience in the Lord and among His people there. One of the miraculous things, also too, that I came away with. Now I'm doing this from a distance, distance, obviously. So I'm just hearing things secondhand. But um, I wonder if you would remark on this too. The one of the remarkable things is the utter absence of things that we have seen in the in past revivals, being two of them that come to mind. One, um, and maybe a third, I guess. But one being no like speaker, no like big name guy that's there to draw a crowd, which I think is incredibly interesting. And if you have any history or understanding of revival, that's actually kind of odd, but also not so odd because I think it was like Leonard Raven Hill that said, you don't have to market revival and it markets itself. Um, so, and then the other thing would be the absence of a worship band. So they had a worship team, but from what I heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, I heard they have a piano, they have an acoustic guitar, and then they've got young guys up on stage singing. Um, but that was it. And I know for a fact, there was no like internationally known recording artists there to kind of lead worship that night and no lights, no smoke, no mirrors, just a pure, sincere outpouring of of praise and worship to God, which is so sincere. And then I guess the third thing 
which kind of backs all this up, is I don't know if you saw Tucker's, uh, not his interview with the guys over at Asbury, but when he said, I want to come on, I think it was last Friday. Um, But he reported on his show that they asked him not to come simply because they don't want to make this about publicity and about being on Fox News, but they want to just make this about seeking Jesus. And Tucker at the end of that said, God bless them for turning us down because he had seen so many people in the industry who were only seeking publicity for their own kind of self-aggrandizement. And so all of this kind of goes back to just the motive of the heart of the people that were there at Asbury, which to me was so remarkable. Yeah. Again, I think one of the maybe, honestly, maybe the hallmark of what's going on there is simplicity. Hmm. Um, Not only did they not have smoke machines, lights, a fancy, you know, soundboard, all that kind of stuff. They didn't even have a screen to read the words off of the people were singing. I mean, In my mind, I'm like, they could at least put a screen up here. <laughs> but but God, God doesn't need a screen. And I do know this, again, because, you know, I, I know some people that are really connected with leadership there and stuff. Um, there were big-name speakers and worship teams and worship leaders. But for, there was one there the night we were there. We know her well. She's good friends with – she's probably the leading female worship leader in America right now as far as her ministry and stuff. And – um, she's friends. She's good friends with my youngest daughter, who has Jude, our, our grandson, special needs, and she really prays for him and communicates with Hannah a lot. But she was there, and um, you know, so there, there, there are not to not to lead worship. She came to receive, but people like her begin to call the university a couple of weeks, three or four days after it's, it broke out, and offering their sir, hey, we'll come and we don't need to get paid, we don't need this. Preachers came to share. They said we don't have, but. N- they would not. They didn't want it. Mm. They didn't want it to be about a personality. And man, I love that. Yeah. I mean, I just I love it. <laughs> I mean, so literally, I and there were people there. I knew they were there, and it, many people would know their name. I'm not going to mention their name, but they're up in the balcony with baseball hats on, kind of like just receiving. Mm. Um, so that that really stood out to me as well, as well as just the way that the Lord. Um, you know, in a culture that's so driven visually um, and yeah. that's so driven by media and technology, I mean, for him to move in the simplicity like he's moving, um, just it shows he is enough. Leonard Ravenhill, back to Ravenhill, Ravenhill said, he said, the early church had much endowment and empowerment. He said the modern church has much entertainment and little empowerment and endowment. Mm. And so just, you know, the the manifestation of the way the Lord is doing this, it's almost like he's kind of sticking his finger in the eye of modern of, of modern thought and just saying, Listen, I can do what I want to do when I want to do yeah. it. And so yeah, there's there is a beauty in the simplicity. However, that simplicity is coupled with a depth of visitation that far supersedes and trumps anything that we can do through technology, through sound, through entertainers, through Mm -hmm. big names. I mean, that's, and that's really, that's the nature of the kingdom. And, you know, there are moves of God, especially the the Welsh revival that broke out in 1904 in, um, in Wales and Lockhart Wells at Mariah Chapel. I've been there many times as well. Got dear friend, I do ministry in that part of the world from time to time. I have dear friends with revival history there. But, um, you know, Evan Roberts was an unknown 26-year-old coal miner, and he wasn't a preacher. Matter of fact, they said oftentimes he would stand and just cry, and the Spirit of God would just fall. But 
the revival the 19 that Wales had revival in the 1800s but this that's what's known as the land of revivals but this one in 1904 that we know so much about which is two years prior to the Azusa Street outpouring on Bonnie Bray then Azusa Street in Los Angeles 1906 to 1909 but this 1904 awakening was really um, was really connected to worship and singing more than it was known as the revival of hymns and songs and a lot of great hymns with with deep christology came out of that song or came out of that move of god honoring the lord so there is there are some patterns that are similar because really this 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 thing that god has done at asbury you're right i mean there's there's a uh, like a baby grand piano yeah. a six string guitar and a not even a set of drums but just a beatbox that somebody sits on and just you know oh, like a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's that's it but Man, the anointing on on those guys, and they they would rotate out probably every two hours. And then you know, there people said there's no there is some preaching. I mean, they there's not like you know like a Finney or something like that, but they definitely read the Bible a lot. They even have different young people coming at reading scriptures. But then they also will bring sometimes periodically. I saw I think two while I was there, they would come up and do like a ten fifteen minute exhortation and bring a challenge or bring an encouragement with the word. So some of that is going on. Um, it's not just singing, but it's it's predominantly just worship and prayer. But there there are other things taking place there that I that I witness myself. That's that's awesome. So I want to talk about what we figured out just this uh, past week that they were actually closing uh, Asbury to the public as a result of a couple of different things. So um, obviously, in the spirit of being um, charitable and not just cynical, um, I want to I want to I want to talk about this because I think it's of interest and I think it's intriguing to talk about. So what what are your thoughts about setting an official like end date for the revival. Now, I want to be fair and just say that they haven't technically done that because they're still ministering and trying to refocus their efforts on high school and college students. And so it's open to them, but otherwise they've closed it to the public. So I kind of, I'll be totally honest and say I had kind of torn feelings here. I, I kind of felt like they shouldn't give in to the pressure that it seemed that the city was giving them because it's a small town outside of Lexington, Kentucky, and it was being overwhelmed by people who were coming from all over the world. But I think to myself, hey, you know, don't don't step in the way or stifle the move of God. But but then I also am sympathetic to the idea of, hey, we're we are who we are. We're going to focus on young people, and that's what that's what God's called us to do, and that's what we're going to do unapologetically. So I'm kind of kind of in in the middle between uh, and kind of torn by how I feel about the fact that they seem to be experiencing a genuine move of God and then put an end date on it. Um, and so uh, I go back to Leonard Ravenhill here and why revival tarries and the reason why it doesn't is just simply because of a lack of prayer and a lack of hunger. So so what did you come away with with your impression of the fact that this this lasted for about three weeks and, and then it was done? Yeah, well, I guess my impression comes from number one being there. Um, it is very small. I mean, it's like, have you been to Wilmore before? Uh, no, I've driven past Wilmore because I used to live in Cincinnati. Yeah, it's like the size of Crawfordville, Florida. <laughs> it's a tiny. It yeah. Actually, the school, you know, of course, there's Asbury College across the street is Asbury Theological Seminary. But those buildings that comprise that those both those campuses are really that is the town. I think there's I might have saw I think one gas station. It's very tiny. So you're dealing with um, sewage issues. I mean, I'm being practical. Sewage issues or bathroom issues. You're dealing with just people literally can't get out of the driveway to go to work i mean this yeah people were parking in driveways and parking in businesses yeah i mean just this huge influx so 
practically, you know, understand why they did what they did. At the same time, I'm like you. I'm, I'm challenged. I'm like, man, put big tents up outside. Let's just make it happen. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but yeah. I do kind of understand where they're at. And I will say this. Um, I don't – and this is this is something that I, now I'm speaking to what I've been seeing and not just myself, many other leaders that I know. I don't think that what God's doing is just supposed to, in this generation is supposed to be contained to like a Brownsville type setting yeah. where everybody just comes to one place. I re- and that's why I think instantly it seemed like I mean, within three or four days we begin to hear reports of this campus and people are praying here. I know I, I've got pastor friends right now. Um, one tr- awesome church I preach at in Dothan, Alabama, which isn't too far from Crawfordville, Florida, that we both talked about here today. But um, Man, they're young people. They've been in, like, prayer for, like, days now. I mean, just a, a youth group. And they have a, a, a school, a K-12 school, 100-something kids. And, like, the kids are – so. in other words, I, I'm seeing this thing spread like wildfire. Yeah. Um, I think Brown – I think – I'm sorry, Asbury was a match that kind of lit this flame. But I really believe that this thing is supposed to spread – it's not just supposed to be something that's housed at one place, one campus, one one region, and that the Lord is going to um, to supernaturally, you know, allow this thing to really continue to spread. So, but again, at the same time, I mean, of course, I mean, I wanted my kids to go. Um, I wanted my grandkids to go. Yeah. I have a, I have friends that are calling me now because they were planning to go maybe in a couple of weeks as they worked at their schedule and they're not able to go. But at the same time, man, I preached at a church this Sunday near Orlando. Um, I mean, again, I don't try to extend services, but but nobody would leave. Matter of fact, I had to leave the church at one forty-five to get, drive back to Orlando and get a plane back to um, Charlotte. When I when I left, eighty-five percent of the church was still on the altar, wow. crying, going after God. So, so God's doing something, brother. Now, I think He used Asbury, and again, it's interesting that the Lord has visited that place multiple times. This is usually they've lasted four to five days or three to five days. So this is much longer than normal. And of course, because of media and because of the attention, Fox News and stuff, this one just exploded. But um, but yeah. I believe that it's just the beginning. We're seeing things at Sanford College, Lee University in Cleveland, Tennessee, um, a lot of different places in, in Cedarville, Ohio, a university there. Um, and I believe the Lord's just going to continue to pour out. I really do. I think we're in a season of true visitation and i'm not saying thus saith the lord but even maybe the beginning of real awakening in our generation so yeah so anyway. well he's certainly not relegated to any temporal space and in any one location so um so i'm all for it and i kind of here's the the idea that i came away with with all of this is that um there are all sorts of things that are fleeting in life that are absolutely essential, like your breath. It doesn't last very long, but you, but you're, but you have to have it. It's necessary for life. So, regardless of, um, and I think the guys over at Asbury did a great job of this too. By the way, uh, regardless of how long it lasted, um, what what ultimately I do believe is a good metric for an authentic revival is the lasting fruit and the impact that it has in the city and in our family and in the places and our workplaces all around. So eventually, um, these times of visitation have to lean into the Great Commission. So when in their statement, they were really, really clear that that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to move from what took place into God-honored serving your neighbor. So um, so, I, so I was uh, really thankful for that. So I guess the last thing, um, well, I want to do, I want to give people an opportunity to uh, access some of your uh, materials, some of your books and stuff. Um, but before I do that, what, what do you think, if you could just say, 
one thing um, about the legacy of what took place there. What do you? I know it's early on still, but what do you think that the legacy of Asbury w- is? I think the legacy will be um, a divine, sovereign visitation that led to an expansion of the Great Commission throughout America. I mean, I really believe that, and, and even beyond. I think it's one of those things that's going to have um, a living legacy connected with it. I mean, yeah. I'll tell you this, Reed. Um, it is very rare, and I go all over the world, very rare that I go somewhere where I do not come in contact with someone who was not radically touched through the Brownser revival. And I've been blessed. You know, I was over the school, two schools. I mean, I've been blessed to train and send out hundreds and hundreds of missionaries around the world that came through the Brownser revival. And, man, they're, they're doing it. They're planting churches. They are, they're, they're pulling kids out of sex trafficking in Thailand and the Philippines. Yeah. They are winning the loss. They're discipling people. They're, do, they're, they're planting ministry schools. They're, they're, they're helping people with culture and society. So I think that will be the lasting fruit, that, that in the midst of this, again, this dark culture that God visited again, and as a result, the, um, the Great Commission was really expanded in a supernatural way. Yeah, that's great. All right, well, you've got a book that I think will help us in the process of understanding the necessity of revival, maybe in a couple of different ways, because you've got a book on your first love and making sure that you live a sustained surrender. And then the one that I'm particularly interested in that I'm going to have to buy is A World Without Absolutes, uh, Discerning the Perils of Postmodern Thought. So um, certainly, you've been kind of analyzing what state we're in and our need for God for a while, and I want people to gain access to those resources. So uh, we're where can people find that, and what would you recommend for them? Um, well, the easiest way to find them is you could just go to, to Amazon and just type in my name, Keith Collins, and you know it'll show books. Just click that, and but it, or Keith Collins, a world without absolutes, or first love fire. Um, that's that's the easiest easiest place to get them. And what was your second question? I'm sorry. Well, where can we find them? But um, also, too, uh, you have a personal website as well, right? I do. Yes, I do. Um, actually, I have two. My personal one, is you can just go to keith-collins.org, and on there, um, you know, you can find where I'm speaking. You can find, you know, things that we're involved in and so forth. And so we're actually in the process right now. I've got a guy down in Central America. He's redoing both my websites because we're going to be bringing on a lot more um, available, like I, I have several classes that I've done on postmodernism, biblical worldview, books of the Bible, leadership training, church planting, and, and we're going to have hours and hours and hours of, of resources connected to the website. So that's literally happening right now. But um, so anyway, you can visit us again. Keith-Collins.org is is the best one to go to right now. Okay, and I always love to ask this question because I know it's true that you have a favorite child, um, uh, but you just never want to tell anybody. Uh, so, uh, and and books are something we pour our life into to to create, much like a child. Um, so, I love asking, which is your favorite book that you've written that you would recommend to people? I would probably, honestly, you know the the book that I just wrote. Um, it was kind. Of, it's kind of different than my other books in the sense that I actually use some some personal experience and I felt the liberty to do that usually my, my way of writing is not really that way um, but this one I felt to use some personal experiences and I really believe that first love fire subtitle living a life of sustained surrender um, 
I don't believe you can read it and not be impacted in a positive mm. and in a challenging way. So I would really recommend that. As far as the biblical or the um, a world without absolutes, I literally took a 300, I think 80 something page graduate research paper and boiled it down to seven bite-sized chapters that young people could read because mm. there's not many young people wanting to read a daunting <laughs> you know paper lot like that so right. but that's an important book as well and then Samuel's arising it's really uh, a call for the church to to awaken and to become the voice that God's called us to be but but yeah de- definitely first love fire right now is my favorite book child <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I, I I I feel that too. I'm in the process. I'm in the process of writing something that's my only. So um, so it's my favorite at least at this point in time. If I ever finish it, but uh, make sure to go check out Keith-Collins.org or ImpactGF.org, uh, uh, where you can access those resources and also listen to past teachings from from Keith. Well, you've you've been a blessing to the body of Christ. Thank you for everything that you've been sharing online about what just took place and continuing to kind of stoke. Uh, the legacy of revival and stoke the next generation toward revival. Um, so thank you for everything you've been doing, and thank you for uh, a continued ministry of, of gracefulness towards others. Thank you, Reed, and thank you for what you're doing too as well, brother. I appreciate you. All right. Thank you guys so much for watching as well. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and most importantly, go with God. We'll catch you next time. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. IndieThinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself.